0: Um, so we're going to continue our Truth Shaped series today. As we've done this series, we've kind of tried to look at uncomfortable topics somewhat. That really wasn't where I started with from the beginning, but we've been, we've been looking at places where the Bible causes us to do things differently, maybe than the world does, or maybe than other churches. So next week, we're going to look at human sexuality from a biblical perspective and where the scriptures call us away to a different, uh, a different idea, of God's design for sexuality. Um, after that, we're going to start the book of James. We'll be studying the book of James for the fall. Today, we're calling it Truth Shaped Gatherings, and we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 14 and a really nice, uncomfortable subject of tongues. Any of you ever heard this word before? Tongues? I'm not talking about uh, the meal that you might eat of beef tongue. I'm talking about speaking in another language. So in the Bible in the New Testament, the word tongue signifies speaking in another language. There's this miraculous thing that occurred in Acts chapter 2 where the people of God were overcome by the Holy Spirit and they began speaking about God's goodness in other languages. And there were people there from the whole world that then heard these proclamations of who God was in those other languages. And so we tend to think of it, especially in our church, in that sense of a known language being spoken and other people listening in, and being able to then follow Jesus. There's also another way that people often use it, and that is the concept of a prayer language. Um, that has not been my common experience, although if, if you count where Romans talks about us um, groaning to God in ways that words can't express and the Holy Spirit praying for us. I don't know if you know that verse in Romans chapter 8. I've definitely prayed in tongues in that sense, if it counts groaning, right? Have you ever just had that kind of prayer where you just you're just sobbing to the Lord. You're just groaning. There's no words for it, but you know that you're praying and you're talking to God. So if, if that counts, then, then maybe I would say I've had that experience. Um, but we would say as a church that that is not normative in the Christian life. Some churches would say praying in that other language should be what every Christian should do all the time, and that's just a normal part of being a Christian. Our view would be, no, it's, it's not normal. And really anything in the Christian life that seems miraculous by definition, is not normal. Does that make sense? Are you following my logic? So miraculously healing someone, I I still believe God can heal people. I believe we can pray and God might heal someone for his glory. He might, he might not. uh, But by definition, that's a miraculous occurrence and therefore it's not normal. It's not an everyday occurrence. So that would be my understanding of things like tongues, things like healing. God can do that if he wants to, but it's definitely not normal. That would kind of be my fallback as we look at 1 Corinthians 14 today, Paul's not really getting into how normal it is or how often it should occur in that sense. What Paul's gonna do is he's gonna contrast between understandable speech and speech that is not understandable. So for our definition, our working definition today, as we read through 1 Corinthians 14, think of tongues as an unknown language and think of the word prophecy as the words of scripture being spoken in a known language. I think that's the most helpful way to distinguish it. If you want to study this topic more, I would highly recommend Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. He did his PhD on prophecy, and he's done a lot of good, helpful thinking on understanding what all of this means. Um, So prophecy, not necessarily predicting the future, but just speaking God's word. So in, in this context, it seems to be in a very casual sense, more like what we would think of as Exhortation. One Christian encouraging another in a language he can understand. So, tongues, unknown language, prophecy, known language. Okay? That's kind of our working definition we'll start with. Um, I'm sure you'll have more questions this week. I'd be happy to answer those uh, afterwards. So, 1 Corinthians 14, uh, if you don't have a Bible, we've got some black Bibles in front of you. It's page 960. Page 960, 1 Corinthians 14. Pursue love. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know it is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves... If with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestation to the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. I want to now skip down to the uh, later section, down to verse 23. And we'll look at more of the verses as well throughout the morning. But down in verse 23, he says, If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. That's the goal that we're shooting for. We want what we do to be understandable so that people would be convicted by God, that they would hear what God has to say to them. Um, I'm going to pray and ask the Lord to help us this morning to be clear so that we would know what he's saying. Let's pray. God, we pray for your help. We pray that your spirit would meet us here this morning. We thank you that you love us and that you've revealed yourself to us as a loving God through Jesus. That even though we're sinners that have wandered from you, you've come to us in forgiveness by nailing our sins to the cross with Jesus and giving us Jesus' resurrection life. So because we have confidence that you love us, we also trust that you want to speak to us. We thank you that you give us your word. We pray that it would be clear that we could understand it. We pray that you would teach us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the benefits that I enjoyed when I attended seminary in St. Louis was visiting a lot of different churches. So I don't know about for you if that's a frustrating feeling to visit churches. I really enjoyed it because I'm a pastor and I was going to seminary thinking about all the different ways people do church. I really enjoyed comparing, looking at different styles, um, why people ordered their service the way they did. So basically, I'm a church nerd, right? So enjoyed visiting probably 15 churches uh, when we were in our seminary years there in St. Louis. Uh, My wife and kids didn't like visiting as much as I did, so... We would go to the morning service at one church together, and then I'd go to the evening service at another church so I could just visit more and more without overwhelming them. One of the churches we visited in this time period while we were trying to find a permanent church home was a really big church, and we were in a married, like young married Sunday school class that we were visiting. It was the first time we had been there, and during the Sunday school class, it was a class of between 50 to 100 people, so a really large church and large Sunday school class There was a person leading the class, like would be normal in a Sunday school class in our culture, and he had a lot of announcements about different activities that people in the class were doing, and picnics, and barbecues, and things they were collecting for a food pantry, and just different things like that. And he got to the end of his announcements, and he just kind of looked out at everyone and said, "Uh, are there any new people here today? And that was kind of scary to me, because I don't know about you, there's probably a lot of new people here, but I don't really want to be pointed out when I'm a new person, right? Right? I kind of want to hide a little bit when I'm new, when I feel like an outsider already. I don't want someone to point out what an outsider I am. Are you that way or is it just me? Some, some of you are that way. So when you already feel like an outsider, you don't want someone coming up and saying, you're an outsider, stand up and demonstrate your outsider-ness to everyone, right? You, just, you feel a little shy about that. You kind of want to just you know, keep it on the down low. So he just looked at everybody and said, are there any new people here today? And I kind of froze, and I'm thinking, well, we're new, so is it lying to not say anything, or should we say something? And finally, I thought, well, I'll, I'll just raise my hand, I guess. Like, here we are, you know, we're new. Uh, I didn't know what I was supposed to say, right? And he just stared at me, and I'm thinking, like, maybe new people are supposed to run around the room, or maybe are am supposed to introduce my wife. I, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. So I thought, okay, just common normal habits. I guess I'll just introduce us. I'll, I'll say her name. So I said, I'm. Dave, this is my wife, Autumn, and we're new here. We just moved to St. Louis a couple weeks ago. And he still just stared at me. It was like he, like I wasn't doing the right thing. I don't know if you've been in that situation. You're like, you're new, you think you know what you're supposed to do, but everybody's just staring at you like you're a freak, and you don't know what's happening. And, and so finally, you know, introduced ourselves. He stared some more, and then he just kind of, he just trailed off after a long, very awkward staring and just kind of mumbled up, oh, okay, hi, you know. Like, he didn't know what to do. I, I, I left that situation feeling like, has a new person never come to that Sunday school class before? <laughs> like, was I the first new person that ever walked into the door? I still don't know what was supposed to happen there, right? I've, I, I kind of file that in the mystery box of I'm not sure what was supposed to go on there. But I think you've all had those kinds of experiences. Maybe not that specific weirdness, but you've had that experience where you're like, I'm an outsider, and the insiders are not making it easy for me to break in, you know? It's like they're making it even harder than it already is. And what Paul is going to say here is we want to always be sensitive to outsiders. There's a sense in which we all, as a complete humanity, universally are outsiders. That's really the Christian message, is that we've all turned from God, so we're all outsiders, so that when we find faith in Jesus and recognize that that God accepts us into his family through Jesus, we were outsiders that have become insiders, that should make us always sensitive to the uncomfortableness that outsiders feel because we were outsiders too. We were outside of heaven. We were outside of paradise and we knew that our sins had separated us from God, but because of his love for us, he invited us in through Jesus. So the Christian church, the, the gathering of God's people, of, of all groups, of all organizations, should be the most sensitive to outsiders. That doesn't mean we change our message, right? It doesn't mean we start figuring out ways to talk about a different God than the God we really serve so that we can make people feel less uncomfortable. It just means we should always in love be sensitive to the outsiderness that outsiders feel. So there's this long-running debate in church circles about is church for insiders or is church For outsiders. And I believe in 1 Corinthians 14 here, Paul says yes. It's both. I mean, really, he says yes. The church is for the church, and when the church does church for the church well, then outsiders will feel welcomed in. It's not just for believers, it's not just for unbelievers. When we do life as believers well and authentically love each other, then unbelievers will understand and want to be a part of that. Not universally, but that's generally the way it happens. So the first thing I want us to key on here in 1 Corinthians 14, is that primarily he starts with the point of the church is to build up the church, right? So here's a a point on the side of the people that say church is for church people, right? Paul's going to start there. He's going to say, yeah, we're for building up the church. Let's read what it says again in verse 1. He says, first of all, pursue love. Whether it's outsiders or insiders, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Again, we're defining that as speaking the words of God clearly in a way that people can understand. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. So here, building up the church, he's defining it by consoling people, comforting people, helping people, encouraging people, strengthening them. He goes on in verse four, the one... Who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. So again, working with our general definitions, we don't want to get too far in the weeds of the experience of comparing charismatic versus non-charismatic. What we want to say is there are things we do in worship that's understandable, And there are things we do in worship that's not understandable. And what Paul is saying is it's better to be understandable. It's great to practice not understandable things in our worship. That's fine as long as some explanation is taking place. Interpretation needs to always be there. So it's not wrong for the church to ever do anything unique or weird or strange. We're the church. We're always going to be weird, right? That's just that's who we are. We are God's special weird people. You could almost define... The word saint, sanctified, as weird, right? That's, that's kind of literally the word means set apart, right? Here's the world. We're all doing our normal human thing, rebelling against God, and then God says, I love you, and he sets us apart. And he says, obey me, do what I say, and he starts making us weird because we're actually listening to him and obeying him. So there's always going to be a level of weirdness. Paul just says, don't, don't focus on the weirdness. Don't always focus on the stuff that makes you feel better about yourself as a Christian, if it's not understandable, focus on things that's understandable to those that are outside. And in that way, you are loving each other and you're building up those around you. And he's really talking here first, not just about outsiders, but other Christians. So there are things we can do as the church that build us up. I can, I can do things that help me to grow in my faith, but I'm not actually helping the Christians around me. Paul says you should be focused on helping the Christians around you, not just entering into your personal prayer life communion that only feeds you but isn't helpful to those around you, you should do things that encourages those around you. And again, I think Wayne Grudem's definition of prophecy is very helpful because the way he defines it goes along with this verse where it says encouragement and consolation. He defines prophecy as really the casual, personal speaking of God's truth to each other. So again, what we think of more in terms of small groups and discipleship relationships Where we remind each other of God's truth in an understandable way? Are you involved in relationships with the church where you are building up the church? Remember the church, the word means God's people, God's special people. Are you encouraging other people with words that are understandable about God's goodness and God's grace and God's love? We should be seeking to feed each other with God's word, helping each other to remember God's word, right? We all forget We come to church and we're like, yes, Jesus loves me, I can obey him, and then tomorrow things go crazy, we start to forget. And so we need throughout the week to be encouraging each other and building each other up with words of God's truth. So we should build the church with the truth, a goal of feeding each other and helping each other to grow. Um, Have y'all ever, y'all have a grand, anybody here have a grandma? Y'all have grandmas? Some of you? Okay, a few of you have a grandma. Okay. Have you ever noticed that grandma loves to feed you? Is your grandma like that? My grandma, my, both my grandparents are gone now, but they loved to feed me. And my mother loves to feed my children. My mother-in-law loves to feed my children. Uh, I found this kind of funny meme the other day. It says, uh, Grandma, she's, she's feeding a teenager and she's saying, Grandma, I'm full, right? Like, I've had enough. I, I don't know if you're like that, but Grandma, it's hard for her to take no for an answer, Right? You can, you can take one more cookie, honey, right? Like just a little bit more. It just, it's this compulsive desire to, to grow you, to, to build you up, right? It's a way that grandma exercises love often, uh, I think in our culture and other cultures as well. I think it's a pretty universal grandma thing of trying to, to build you up with food. I remember one time in Peculiar, and I'll, I'll probably get in trouble for this because my mom is actually here, but one time I was at my mom's house and um, my son and I were going and we were gonna meet the rest of our family there later, and we brought our dinner, and they were going to bring their dinner later. We were all going to meet up. My sister was in town, and we're all going to meet up at my mom's house, at grandma's house. And so my son and I are sitting there eating our dinner, and my mom had had kind of a long day, so she was kind of tired, and she was kind of pacing back and forth, like from the kitchen to the dining room table, from the kitchen to the dining room table, and she kept asking us if we wanted something to eat. She's like, well, I've got this, and I've got that, and we were literally eating right in front of her, right? It's like, Mom, we, we've got food right here. We're eating. We're, we're okay. And she kind of kept walking back and forth. Can I get you anything to eat, honey? Can I get you anything? No, we're okay. Can I get you anything to eat? And she just kind of kept going back and forth and back and forth. And I was like, Mom, I, I think maybe you need eat. She was like, yeah, I'm kind of tired. I, didn't, I haven't really eaten yet. And I was like, well, well, we'll sit down and eat, okay? Um, this reminds me, another way to say this is in the airplane, when you're getting the little speech at the beginning, it says, if you have a child with you, take the oxygen mask first on yourself and then hook them up to the oxygen mask, right? So, so there is that extreme where we can maybe think, I've, I've got to serve other people so much that I'm not actually feeding myself, right? And we could take it, that is possible. We can take it to an extreme. Generally, though, that's not the problem we have in the church. I, I think generally, we're just trying to feed ourselves, and we're not trying to feed anybody else. Generally, we're consumers. Generally, we're not like grandma. Generally, we're just looking out for number one, and our whole thought process about church is, what helps me to grow? What helps me to go deeper with God? What makes me feel closer to him? What helps me to understand the gospel? And we're not really thinking about the gathering of God's people being about encouraging each other. And one of the things, Chris, our worship leaders talked about this, and I know I've preached on this. I think even our assistant pastors talked about this. Uh, throughout the scriptures, when it talks about us singing God's word together, it talks about us singing to each other, right? Like when we sing and we're singing the gospel, the purpose is not for you to just be singing your favorite song. That's not the point. We're actually to be encouraging one another. The scriptures are very clear about that in in Colossians and Ephesians. The goal is to be building up the church. It's a communal event where we're feeding each other with the truth of God's word. So go back to verse one. That's where we start, love, pursue love. Loving others, loving those around us. Are you seeking to love those around you with God's word? That should be central to the gathering of God's people. Um, My my next application would be, as you think about how to do that, that you would think about ways in which you can encourage those around you um, with love as the goal. Another way I would say it is this. Sometimes when you find a church that you really love and you've grown in your faith, when you go to the next church, you're going to want to see them imitate exactly what happened there. Form for form, piece for piece. What I would say is focus on love as the goal and building up the church. That's what we should be looking for. I mean, I would, it would build me and Chris's ego if there were a million churches that started imitating everything we do at Grace Bible Church, right? I mean, we would think that was great, But ultimately, I don't think that's what should happen. I think people should express their worship in unique ways that make sense in their community where the goal is building up believers in understanding and growing in their faith in God and His Word. That's what what should be happening. So so focus less on the specifics of what and focus more on the why. Why are we doing this? So that we can love others because God loved us first. And, And what are we trying to do? We're trying to build up each other and that might look different in different places if you go to another country i would hope that you would be worshiping in their language right and not in our language you should be worshiping in a way that helps to build up the church ephesians 429 is a helpful verse to think about i memorized this when i was a kid and i was trying to stop cussing um, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths Have y'all ever heard that the other uh the more old translation i think is let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouths Have y'all heard that one before Let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up. There's that word again for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. If you've read the Bible, you know that the authors of the Bible sometimes use vulgar speech. So it's not so much about whether or not you're using vulgar language, it's it's about the goal of building up others. Are you trying to give grace to those who hear? not about the specific words it's about what's the intent of those words sometimes you need to speak hard words to people to challenge them and to wake them up when they're stuck in sin sometimes you need to comfort sometimes you need to cry with those who cry or rejoice with those who rejoice but is the goal love giving grace to those who hear that's what paul's talking about in Ephesians 4:29 and in 1 Corinthians 14 so the goal is the church is for the church the goal is to build up the church But he's also going to tell us that we want to always be thinking about outsiders as well. He's going to challenge us so it's not just for the church, it's also for outsiders. And the bridge between those two ideas is that we should always be communicating the truth clearly. We should always be communicating clearly. So let's look at verses 6 through uh, 19. This will be the longest section we read here. 6 says, Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? So that's where I'm kind of working with a broad definition of prophecy as just speaking God's word in an understandable way because here he's relating it to revelation, knowledge, and teaching, right? So he's kind of lumping all those things together in one box and saying true words that people can understand as opposed to true words that people cannot understand. So he's saying focus on clear words that we can understand. Verse 7, he'll give an illustration here. If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking to the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I'll be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. Let's stop there for a second. So his illustration is, If you got a bugle, and the bugle is just making random sounds, it doesn't call the soldiers to battle, right? If you have a harp or a flute, and it's just making random sounds, it's not music. The goal is clarity, that people can understand what they're hearing. Any of you ever, like, tooted on a horn you didn't know how to play? Have you ever done that before? Sorry, I used the word toot. Any of you ever picked up a... (laughs) They were used to like a, grab a guitar, right? Like I love to come into Chris's office and grab his guitar, right? We sit down and we chat and I just sing the same two songs I know over and over again or I make up a song. And when I make up a song, it doesn't sound like a song because I can't play the guitar, right? So it's like there's this indistinct sound. It's meaningless. It's not helpful. It's not encouraging anybody. Paul's saying when we speak in tongues as opposed to prophecy, it's, it's not really helping anybody. And he has that aside. It might... It might help you, right? It might be a known language. Someone somewhere might hear it, but the person right in front of you doesn't hear it. They don't understand it. It's not helping those around you. So think about your context and speak clearly. Pick back up in in verse 12. He says, So with yourselves, since you're eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. If you know 1 Corinthians, you know they had some problems with trying to show off. They had problems with trying to show how spiritual they were to other people. And this is a common problem we have. It's the worst among Christian leaders. So pray for me. Pray for the other leaders of this church. But Christian leaders love to show their leaderness, their separateness, their specialness. And Paul's saying, connect with people. Don't show how different and special you are. Connect. Speak a language that people can understand. Be real. Be authentic. And so, so since you want a manifestation of the The Spirit strive to excel in building up the church. That should be the kind of manifestations of the Spirit that should be happening. Verse 13, therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret, to clarify it. Verse 14, for if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say, amen? to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying. For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. This is really interesting. Paul seems to be speaking about something like uh, an ecstatic experience that is very emotional where your mind is not that involved. And Paul is not necessarily wholeheartedly condemning that. What he's saying is it's better if your mind is involved so that people can understand what's happening so that you can be clearly communicating the gospel. So, so there are experiences we've all had where we just feel like we're, we're just transported into the presence of God, right? There are personal experiences, things that you have that are, we'll say preferences. Your preferences of worship, whether you love Uh, full-tilt Pentecostal worship, or you love real old-school hymns, you love um, teachers that go on for three hours, preachers always wish you loved more of that, Um, or if you love, you know, preachers that tell a lot of jokes, or whatever it is, whatever kind of private prayer maybe where you're like, when I'm praying alone in the woods, that's the most awesome thing ever. Paul doesn't necessarily wholeheartedly condemn that. Paul acknowledges there are these emotional experiences we have where we feel transported into the presence of God, and that's fine, But Paul says, I'm always coming back to what's going to help others. Not just what's going to help me. What's going to help others? How can I build up the church? How can I instruct the church? How can I love the church? How can I build up? How can I be clear? How can I be understandable? So you're going to have private experiences in your Christian walk. They're going to mean everything to you. First of all, uh, don't be a tyrant with those experiences. In order for the body of Christ to love each other and build each other up, you can't hold that over and say, all of you should enjoy the same things I enjoy, right? You should allow your mind to control you and not just be, oh, I'm just at the mercy of the experiences I love. No, your mind can be involved too and use your mind to consider other people and communicate clearly in a way that builds up others. So Paul is challenging us here. Our tribe traditionally is kind of an anti-charismatic tribe, just so you know. Surprise for those of you that are charismatic. Um, Those of you that come from a charismatic background, the Bible church history has tended to be scared to death of that kind of thing. That's kind of our background, right? Um, And I would say we want to have some moderation because biblically, Paul doesn't condemn all the manifestations of charismatic life. So we want to not condemn that either. Paul says very clearly uh, in 1 Corinthians, don't forbid the speaking of tongues. So we don't want to forbid charismatic things, but we want to be honest and go, yeah, it scares me a little bit, right? It makes me a little uneasy. And I come back to here where Paul doesn't, Condemn it. He doesn't say, "Don't ever do these kind of weird things." What he says is, "Always focus on things that can communicate clearly to others." God's grace. We want people to understand what's happening. We want to be clear. I don't know if y'all have ever seen uh, road signs like this. Uh, this is outside of Murfreesboro, Tennessee, and that's like five, six. I don't. Know, I can't even count it. Different highways overlapping all at one junction. Has that ever happened to you? Or you get these Google map directions and it tells you to follow one highway, but all the signs call it by another name. And after you've gotten lost for an hour, you realize, oh, it's the same highway. It just has three names, right? So I'm just really confused about that. Well, Paul keeps saying, try to be as clear as possible. Try not to be a, a gathering of believers that are giving people mixed messages and confusing signs and saying different things. Try to be a people that are clear, and what happens is the more we focus on our own desires and our own wants and our own preferences and our personal prayer life and communion with God, the less easy it is for us to think about others' needs. So Paul is saying, I do this stuff. Paul says, I even I do this weird stuff. I pray in tongues, but I want to focus on speaking in a way that people can understand. Paul says, that's where we want to keep coming back to. Is it okay to have preferences? Preferences are fine, but keep bending your preferences back to how can I love person next to me? How can I speak to them in a way that they understand? For the building up of the church, and then now he's also going to say, for the building up of outsiders as well. Really doing things in the same way is beneficial for the church, and it's beneficial for those that come from the outside. So first of all, I just want to make some application here in communicating clearly. I said this already. Pray for the leaders here at the church. Um, I don't know that this happens as much with Christians that are attending churches that does with the leaders, I I know personally this is definitely a temptation for leaders, is we often want to sound smart, right? There's this strong temptation to want to sound like we really know what we're talking about. And one of the best ways to sound smart is to confuse people with big words, right? I mean, that's a really good tool in my toolkit. I know a lot of big words I learned in seminary, a lot of Greek, a lot of Hebrew, um, a lot of big theological words that nobody uses in everyday life, but the scripture challenges me to communicate clearly. So does that mean I will never use any big words? No, the goal would be that I could build a bridge and connect you to what those words actually mean. One of my favorite examples Jesus gives us of what leadership should look like is washing his disciples' feet. So I think that applies to leaders as well as anybody in the Christian life. We should communicate clearly and think about it as foot washing. Think about it as as stooping to love others in simple ways, and to serve them. And not to be thinking so much about, what makes me feel better? What's easy for me? What's helpful for me? What are the words I like to use? Thinking about how you can serve others in love. Um, This is very common sociologically. If you have a little group of friends, I've noticed this with my teenage kids, um, but I remember it from when I was a teenager as well, um, and just different teams I've worked on. You start to have your own set of jargon, right? Have you ever noticed that? Like if there's a team you work with for a couple of years, You start to have all your own inside jokes, start to have your special words. And it's almost fun because it's a symbol of your teamness. But it's also a way of keeping outsiders out and saying, you don't get it, you're not one of us. So another application I would say is pray that the Lord would reveal that sort of thing to us as believers. Just pray that the Lord would help us to understand what's the jargon that I'm using? Let's just try to eliminate jargon as much as possible. Again, not in this extreme way where we say Christians should never be weird, Christians should never stick out, we should never use unusual words. I mean, there's some words and some concepts in the Scripture that we have to hold on to. We'll continue to hold on to theological words and ideas, right? There's no uh, version of Trinity out there in the secular world, so that doesn't mean we just throw away Trinity, right? We want to hold on to some of these theological concepts because they're important to us. But what are the areas where there's another word I could use, Right? What are areas where we use jargon, where we use insider language when we could be using a plainer term? I just pray that the Lord would reveal that to you. A really good, helpful way to do this is just ask your best friend or your spouse. Just say, hey, are are there like weird inside jargon words I use that other people don't really understand when it comes to my faith or prayer? And just get an outside perspective so you can rethink what it means to communicate to others so you're not using those pet words. Well, the last thing I want us to think about uh, is how this then persuades outsiders. So as we build the church, as we invest in each other in love, and we do that in clear language, language that people can understand, Paul says that's what will actually persuade outsiders. You don't have to change the message, right? You don't have to take away all discomfort. Just be clear and encourage each other with the truth. And when you do that, outsiders will then be convicted and persuaded. Look at verses 20 through 25. He says, brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. So he's saying, uh, be babies when it comes to doing wrong, right? You want to be as innocent as possible in your behavior, but in your thinking be wise, be wise, be mature. Verse 21, in the law it is written by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're all out of your minds? So this is kind of a confusing uh, analogy that he used. This is actually one that I've struggled with over the years, and I, I think I have a pretty good explanation for it at this point. He's quoting from Isaiah, where God says, basically, a judgment on the people of Israel will be, they will hear people speaking in foreign tongues because they haven't listened to God speak to them in their language. So because they refuse to listen and obey what God told them, God says, okay, then you'll hear foreign tongues that you don't understand. So it was a sign of judgment. It was a sign of their unbelief. So the Israelites had become unbelievers. And so basically, this is how I would restate Paul's analogy. Uh, Unknown languages are a sign of outsiderness to outsiders, and known languages are a sign of insiderness to insiders. So what Paul is saying is, as you speak known languages and show each other that you belong to God and you are believers and you have faith, then outsiders will be able to hear and understand, and that's when they will be persuaded. I'll go on and read the rest of the verses here. Um, He says, if therefore in tongues an outsider or unbeliever enter... Will they not say that you're out of your mind? So if you're speaking a language nobody can understand, people come in and they're like, these people are crazy. I don't get it, right? It allows people that don't believe to remain in the hardness of heart. But go on to verse 24. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. I've grown in my understanding of this passage because I am naturally a kind of person that wants to comfort people, right? That's just kind of how God's wired me. God's made me so I want to make people feel at ease. And so I have this danger I have to watch out for of then the goal of speaking language that people understand means always making people comfortable. But is that what he's saying? He just said, if you speak in a language people understand, they'll be made so uncomfortable they'll fall on their face and trust in God. You see that dynamic? So we don't want to define clarity as comfort. Those are two different things. So the church's job is not to take away everything that offends. Say, people don't really like the the idea of sin, so let's not talk about sin anymore. People don't really like the idea of a holy God, so let's not talk about a holy God. That's not what Paul is saying. He's just saying don't add extra layers of miscommunication. Be clear about who God is. Be clear that we're sinners, that we need to repent. And as we talk in clarity with each other, then outsiders will come in and they will understand the clarity, but they might, in that understanding, become very uncomfortable. In order for us to know who God is, we have to go through an existential experience of great discomfort. We have to go through that experience of being cut to the heart and realizing there's something deeply wrong with me. I'm broken. I'm a sinner. I'm full of pride. I want to be my own God. And when we recognize that, we fall on our face and we repent. We say, I can't be my own God. I'm not good enough. I'm not strong enough. I'm not righteous enough. I don't love people well. I need a God who will forgive me. I need a God who will nail my sins to the cross in Jesus. And so there's great discomfort that can come when we are welcoming and clear. Do you see how those two things go together? We often think they don't. I know I've personally struggled with that. I've personally wanted to just make everybody comfortable. Sometimes what it means is be as clear as possible so that they can be uncomfortable in the right way. I believe that's what Paul is saying here. I thought an x-ray might be a helpful way to illustrate this. Um, You want people to be able to hear what you're saying about who God is so they realize, wow, they know what's inside of me. They know what's in my heart. They know what's in my mind. They know my doubts. They know my struggles. And when people are allowed to see that, see the reality, the authenticity of what we believe, that's when they're cut to the heart. If we spend all our time speaking in our own special language that nobody can understand, we're basically saying, don't even consider my message. But when we speak in a language that people can understand, that's clear, then that opens the door for them to consider what is being said, for them to be, as I said, cut to the heart persuaded, made uncomfortable in the right way. So maybe another way to say it is, are we making people uncomfortable in the right ways or in the wrong ways? Are we making people just uncomfortable with our culture or are we making people uncomfortable with the truth of who God says he is? He's a holy God and all of us fail to measure up. He's a gracious God who comes to us in Jesus, who forgives us of our sins. That's our hope. So the goal is not to remove all uncomfortableness. The goal is not to... um, Eliminate all confrontation, but allow the gospel to be the thing that does the confronting. Clear away all the clutter so that our preferences, our favorite ways of talking, our favorite ways of gathering are not getting in the way to make it confusing to people to see who God is and what he's saying. A great example of this is in Acts chapter 17. Um, In Acts chapter 17, Paul is preaching the gospel to the Athenians so these are the sophisticated pagans that don't believe the Bible. And so what Paul does is he builds a bridge and he connects with them through the poets of their day. Paul is quoting their favorite poets and books and movies if they had them in that time, right? He's connecting with them in a way that they can understand. He's being very respectful of the things that they believe and he's challenging the things they believe. So we build a bridge of respect. We try to be as comforting and as clear as we possibly can, and then we try to make room for the God of the universe to reveal himself through the truth that we're speaking. We build a bridge. Jesus walks across that bridge. I want to wrap up with just a a final thought uh, about Jesus. There's a great story in the Gospels. A lot of you have probably heard this. I learned a little song when I was a kid about Zacchaeus. Y'all heard of Zacchaeus? He was a wee little man. Um, And so this wee little man climbed up in a sycamore tree so that he could see Jesus. He wanted to see Jesus. He was a a sinner. He was a tax collector. Uh, Tax collectors in the first century, classically, were just known for their corruption. So Zacchaeus was guilty of these kinds of sins, but he wanted to see Jesus. And he climbs up in this tree to see him. And what's really cool is that Jesus comes to him and he says, Zacchaeus, come down for I'm going to your house today. And so as much as we are thinking about our gathering and how we can communicate clearly to love each other well and to build each other up in our faith, to speak wholesome words that give grace to each other, as much as we want to think about our responsibility to be clear, what's really beautiful is that the the gospel message, the, the Bible message is not so much about us bringing Jesus to people, but Jesus going after people. And so I want to just finish with that idea that we serve a God who chases after us. We this picture of Zacchaeus climbing up to see him, and Jesus says, I'm coming to your house. I'm coming to see you. I can see right through you. I can see into you, and I'm pursuing you. Let me pray for us, and we will uh, finish up in communion and in worship together. God, we thank you that you are the God that pursues us. And so God, as, as the God that pursues us, I pray that you'd help us to be mindful of that pursuit, of what it's like to be loved by you, to be chosen by you, to be adopted by you. God, you are a gracious God. Pray that we would always remember that in our interactions with outsiders, that we would pursue others in love the way you pursue us in love so that we would demonstrate who you are. God, we pray that you would help us to get out of the way and be clear about your word clearly communicate it, to trust you, to trust that your word is sufficient, that your word is powerful. As the Apostle Paul says, the gospel is the power of God for salvation, both for the Jew and the Gentile. We thank you for that truth. We pray that we would rest in it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. In communion, we are rehearsing that faith that we have. We are saying it all over again weekly that we trust that Jesus is enough. In uh, the first communion meal, it was a Passover meal where Jesus brought the disciples together in their Jewish tradition of remembering a sacrificial lamb and Jesus communicated to them that he is the ultimate sacrificial lamb. So Paul says this, the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it. In remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So as we proclaim the Lord's death together, we're saying, This is my hope. So communion is for baptized believers to demonstrate our faith in Jesus, to to rehearse it, to say it all over again, to replace our faith in Jesus. But it's also really amazing, it's something he's given us for when we struggle and repent to sense his grace, to be encouraged. That he's here for us, that he's here to feed us and to build us up by his grace. It's not for unbelievers. This is not for those of you that don't believe the scriptures or follow Jesus. Uh, we encourage you to just abstain as this is a family ceremony for those of us that want to follow Jesus and trust in him. I'm going to pray for us, and then I'll have you all stand and uh, rotate around clockwise to the stations. God, we thank you uh, for Jesus. We thank you that you've given yourself to us and him. We thank you that our sins are forgiven. We thank you that you love us perfectly in Christ and you've made us your child. Help us to celebrate that well, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.